I hate to admit it, but I never did spend much time with my own, with my own family. My dad, I was told, he was from Holland. He was told that he was always number one, and I hate to say, but it rubbed off on me. And my family was never came first. It should have been. Mm-hmm. But my, my job was always first. I always wanted to be better than anybody else. But my family suffered from that. That was the voice of Mr. Ken Greff, reflecting on one regret from what was a 70-year career in and around trucking, much of it since the late 1960s anyway, spent in truck sales in various parts of Tennessee. Yet, Ken Greff got his start far away from the U.S. Southeast in Western Canada, driving and owning trucks in a variety of operations detailed in this podcast. I'm Todd Dills. In this Overdrive Radio edition, we're excerpting a new effort by host and McMahon Truck Center's sales rep, Corey Price, who lives due east of Nashville near Cookville, Tennessee. Price interviewed Graf for the first episode of a podcast he's calling Trucking Legends, an old school trucking podcast he envisions as a repository for preserving the stories of those who've been in the business going way back. Here's Price setting us up. I grew up around trucks. Uh, I had nearly every one of my uncles in my family have drove trucks and uh, grew up got infatuated with trucks when i was around three or four year old just loved them loved watching them on tv and being around them uh went to uh, my first truck show when i was uh, 10 years old and uh uh I, I was the kid that when i would go to town there was a truck stop in the cookville tennessee and I'd always have my dad stop, and I'd get one of the truck papers just to look at the trucks. Loved anything to do with trucks. And sure, uh, sure. Went, uh, went, what I actually went to was the first annual Music City Chapter ATHS show, American Truck Historical Society show. It was in Nashville. Uh, went with a friend of mine that I went to church with, Jake Baker. He had a 1950 Mac LJT that we drove down there that day when I was 10 and uh, was just around trucks, loved trucks, and then uh, uh, joined ATHS, the organization, when I was like 17. Um, Then I I got married when I was 22, and then when I was 24, I took over being the uh, chapter president for six years of the uh, local American Truck Historical Society chapter and uh, help host their shows and uh, we helped with the alabama chapter host the 2009 national convention in huntsville alabama and uh, i'd always uh worked uh, at the time i was working in a factory that job uh, ended up going to mexico in 2011 and i got a job selling international trucks at dealership there in cookville and uh, sold international trucks for nine years uh, and then I was offered an opportunity uh, through the McMahon truck dealer in Nashville, which is the Mack truck dealer. Um, that part of their territory is up here in the Upper Cumberland area where I live. And they was looking to hire someone to be area manager to sell trucks, parts. And there's a mobile service truck in this area. I helped schedule that and, and uh, help get him work. And uh, we... They they hired me and I've been working with 
uh, Max for uh, a little over three years now. He would uh, he was actually at the first truck show I went to. He he was working for at that time it was Kenworth of Tennessee. He brought yeah. a new Kenworth over to the show, and I vaguely remember him being ten years old. But uh, when I got to be chapter president, every year we would have a, a Christmas dinner and we would have an auction where we would auction off truck stuff and uh, uh, raise money for the chapter. And he was mm-hmm. all, every year he would donate a Kenworth jacket and uh, I would go down there to his office and he would give me a jacket to uh, auction off and I just got to know him through that way. And then... Uh, when I actually got a job in truck sales, he was one of the first people I called because I was very green, new trucks, but didn't know nothing about selling. And yeah. uh, I called him and I was like, listen, I need you to coach me here and help me. And that he did. And along the way, Corey Price got to know Mr. Ken Greff's past a good bit better. Stretches all the way back to World War II times when, as a young boy, he got to start trucking via a little bit of a subterfuge on the part of his mother as you'll hear in what follows. Again, as noted, it's excerpted from the first edition of what Corey Price hopes will eventually be a monthly podcast called, again, Trucking Legends. Along the way, as we run through Mr. Greff's early days trucking toward how he got from trucking in Western Canada to truck sales in Middle Tennessee, we'll hear more from Price, too, on his motivation for creating the podcast. Keep tuned for it all after this message from Overdrive Radio's sponsor. Stop fuel from gelling this winter with House Diesel Treat, North America's number one trusted anti-gel. Right now, you need House Diesel Treat more than ever, not only to keep you gel-free, but to fight the shortcomings of today's ULSD by adding vital lubricity, removing water, and preventing deposits. The only guaranteed anti-gel on the market, Diesel Treat also boosts fuel economy and improves performance. This winter, do yourself a favor and add House Diesel Treat at every fill-up. Visit houseproducts.com for more information. You can stock up on Howe's Diesel Treat for the winter months via H-O-W-E-S, HowesProducts.com. Here's Mr. Ken Griff taking us back to the beginning of what would ultimately be a 70-plus year career around trucking in some form or fashion. Here we go. Okay. Well, I was born at a very early age in 1935 in, in Vancouver, B.C., Canada. My mother at the time was terrified about, she was worried about the Japanese invading Canada. World War II. So we moved to a little tiny town in Alberta. The population to this day is about 185. It was a logging community and an oil community. That's where that's where we landed for for several years, in fact. Uh, I went to school there. I started school when I was uh, five years old. It's a very small school. There's only about five or six grades in that school, so uh, I skipped a couple of grades, so I, I graduated from grade 12 when I was like 13, but not because I was smart, because there wasn't any room for any, any more uh, uh, students. And then I went to work for part-time for Becker's Garage, pumping gas after school every day. And the customers at that time that I pumped gas for they were all lumber haulers, and I was fascinated by their trucks. And I would ride with those guys at night. It was about a 40 or 50 mile trip, little old two lane road. You could only run in the wintertime because it's too muddy in the summertime. I would ride with those guys at night. 
That's how I got so interested in, in trucks. In the wintertime, we would go down to 30, 40 below zero. And some of the traders, they pulled the haul lumber about 40 miles and count nine. Some of the traders were sleigh traders. It was a real narrow road. If a loader truck met an empty truck, the empty truck would go into the ditch. The loader truck would stop and back up and pull them out of the ditch. But they couldn't hardly run in the summertime because of the rain and they were dirt roads. So they had they could only run in the wintertime to haul lumber. The trucks then were mostly Fords, uh, 1944, 45 Fords. Gotcha. The hero, the, the all-time big-time hero, had two internationals, KB7 internationals. And boy, he was our hero. And then one day, he got a B61 Mac. And the, uh, nobody could even imagine the truck that big being on our roads. It was too big a truck. Nick Schmidt was his name. And anyway, that's that story about the, all the lumber. Yeah. Also, at that same time, I, I got into a little band, a guy named Aaron Brown, who was a trucker also. He started the band called the Winfield Amateurs. And, uh, I played banjo. My brother played uh, drums. And Ruthie Brown played the piano. Jackie Brown played clarinet. And Robert Dillman played the saxophone. I might mention at that time, we all had a dream. We all wanted to do certain things. When we grew up, Jackie wanted to be a doctor. He is a doctor today. Ruthie wanted to marry money. She's married to a doctor. Robert Dolman wanted to be in the construction business. Today, he owns a construction company. I wanted to fool with trucks, and I, and I, I did. And my brother wanted, wanted to, uh, to uh, play, play music, and that's what he did and that's what, until he died. A lot of these guys that I'm going to be talking to are up in years. They're going to be passing on, and we're going to lose a lot of knowledge that we would pass mm -hmm. on. And uh, Ken, of course, Ken's 88 years old and, and um, lived alone. He's still very active and healthy. Uh wanted to reach out to him, you know, while, while he's still able to give me information and, and uh, able to. And He's a good storyteller for sure, and his, and his history goes way back, man. Um, I love the story of his uh of, of how he got into trucking um uh by a little bit of a subterfuge on the part of his mother my dear old mother altered my birth certificate and backed it up so when i was 12 but my really it looked like i was 17. i moved to calgary alberta by myself and took a job at macklin motors the ford dealership parking cars i did that for a while and one day i thought i've got to start driving trucks I picked up the phone. I didn't know who to call about a job. I called a company called Stewart Petroleums. I didn't know what, what kind of truck, and they did. I just called them, and they signed me up to deliver propane with a GMZ straight job. And I'd never driven a truck before, just ridden with those guys, so I knew how to shift gears. So that's how I got into the truck. And then later on, uh, I went to work for a company called Wasilowski's Oil Transport, hauling crude oil from Munson, Alberta, into Calgary to the refinery, and I was still pretty young then. And then later on, I drove for a couple other little companies in the meantime, hauling cattle and, and gas and I don't know what all. But one of the guys back in my hometown, Aaron Brown, who started the Winfield Amateurs, he owned uh, Winfield Transport, he and I uh, bought a truck together. My portion of the truck thanks to a lady called Mrs. Sabin, who owned Sabin's store. Uh, to tell you that story, I uh, 
I stole a pipe from her store when I was just a little guy, and Jackie Brown stole a can of tobacco from another store. We went out in the woods, and boy, did we ever smoke. My conscience bothers me, and I took the pipe back to Mrs. Saban at Saban's store, and she remembered that, and she was she loaned me money for my share of that truck. Nobody in my family thought I had any. I was way too young to drive a long haul. So that's when we got that 26 white and started hauling meat from Burns and Company in Edmonton, Alberta, to Boar's Head in Brooklyn, New York. Most of the time, we ran through the U.S. because of better roads and cheaper fuel. You drop into Montana and then go all the way across. How yeah. much was fuel at that time? If- I don't know, but I remember I used to smoke a lot then. I could buy a whole carton of camels for a dollar ninety. I haven't smoked in years and years and years, but it was such a bargain. I had to smoke three at least three packs a day. You know, well, we had actually had a, a refrigerator unit up in the nose. It was a thermocam. Mm-hmm. It was a thirty-two foot trailer. So and, and it weighed it weighed a lot. We couldn't carry but barely haul thirty thousand pounds legally. We we, could, we ran through the states then, so that was important. But. So what what does come through in this quarry for, uh, really well is. Uh, is just the the thirst I think for some of the detail of some of the old trucks that uh, that Ken Ken talks about being in in his early days and he he did talk about that I think it was like a fifty two or fifty three white uh, tractor that he pulled yeah. a reefer with uh, as a what uh, and he was part owner as a at the tender at the, no, at the excuse me at the very advanced age of fifteen modern as trucking is today and all the technology that's out there and me being a max salesman i'm i'm involved in that every day i see the technology that's coming and where it's leading but i don't want people to forget the roots where we come from you know trucks is it it started back way long time i mean it actually even started when they was just using horses and buggies and we've advanced several years over that but I don't want people to forget the roots where it come from and, and, and hear the stories that uh, got us to where we are today, you know. I also love that. Speaking of technology, uh, you know, uh, that stuff was uh, advancing uh, at, a, at a rapid clip back then, too. Uh, he, I know Ken talks about that reefer trailer uh, that he had that, uh, was, you know, had one of the early reefer units, in it, for, for instance. Uh, but also, there's the story of him uh, going down the mountain using one of the uh, first Jake brakes that I believe that PIX company got. After we unloaded in Brooklyn, we jump over into Quebec or Ontario uh, and bring a, a Canadian load of freight back. But the round trip was about 6,000 miles. Man, yeah. I can't even imagine. But and we ran double. I don't know how we did that. A little dinky sleeper, but we didn't know any better. You know, I had a guy running with me. And uh, we tried to do a trip a week if we could, you know. The company was Amalgamated Motor Trucks, and they folded. And we folded too. We turned. <laughs> we couldn't. We couldn't afford to keep the truck. Right. And the trailer. So then I went to work after that for Pacific Inland Express (PIX) in Calgary. And they were a real good union, a teamster company, and started working for them. And it's funny thing, at that time, you had to be 20, I think 25, and I was a lot younger, but my birth certificate showed that I was almost qualified. Right. So I, I was running on, with PIX from 
from Edmonton and Calgary to Winnipeg. And uh, for, I don't know, it's a long time. And I wanted to move out west. I was one of what they called a prairie cowboy. And the western drivers, they all drove two sticks. They were a very exclusive bunch. They didn't wreck, they drove fast, they drove through the mountains, and they were really exclusive bunch of guys. And I was determined that I was going to move out west, and I did. And I was the first prairie cowboy to move out west for PIX. And I sat there for five weeks at PIX, none of those owner-operators wanted to, to fool with me because I was a prairie cowboy. Mm -hmm. One guy named Jim Delarac, they called him Ratsack because he had an army, uh, uh, army blanket for a sleeper curtain and an old Peterbilt. And he was stuck for a driver one night. And he had to get a hot load of peaches out of the Okanagan Valley. And I was here I was sitting, you know, five weeks, didn't know what to do, and he finally signed me up to go with him. And he well, he wore me out because going up, I had to go up to the Okanagan and get a load of peaches to go to Winnipeg. And he first thing he said, he said, Well, we you normally we wouldn't even let a cowboy like you ride with us. We drop him off at the bus station, but anyway. It was, it was this truck had a five and a four mm -hmm. and uh, so I got mad when you I, I drove up up the whole Princeton and uh, I, I was driving slow the, the truck would the auxiliary would stick once in a while mm -hmm. so I have to get out with a rubber hammer get underneath the truck and knock it out of gear you didn't shift that auxiliary on a curve anyway we finally get up there to uh, close to Penticton to, to the Okanagan to the load and he, he started picking on me, and I thought, I can't, I can't handle this. So I just put her on the floor, broke that Peterbilt wide open, and that's all he needed. He, he said, no, we're doing something. And I drove fast from then on, and, and he, he put the word in. He was a shop steward for the union. There was probably a dozen and a half owner-operators at that for PIX. And he, he put the word out that that was pretty good, and I stayed busy from then on. I'd get in off a trip and turn right around right back on another trip with somebody else. Right. Know? So, but that's what it took was just to get angry and put right. it on the floor. When you say put it on the floor, how fast was you going in that old Probably pier? 60. Right. Yeah. You was, well, we had you a lot was, of two-lane roads, too. You know? Right, yeah. Then up in the Okanagan, the, going from Hope to Princeton, if you look at the map, I think it was about 30, 35 miles from Hope to Princeton. It would take an hour and 45 minutes from Hope to Princeton, just crawling up the hill. And you get to the top of the mountain and you'd stop and let the engine cool off. And while the engine was cooling off, you'd crawl under the trailer to make sure your brakes are okay. And you didn't have jig brakes and then mm -hmm. go down the other side and go on. You know. and well, we got a jig. I was one of the first people to get a jig brake. Really? On that freight liner, in fact. And I was one of the, I know I was one of the first guys to get one. I was going down, down into the Okanagan, not the Okanagan, but down into over the other side of Osoyoos, I guess, going down the mountain. And one of my buddies met me, and I was going down the hill, and he heard that jig break. He thought I lost control of the truck. He'd never heard of a jig break. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I was going so fast, you know. <laughs> New technology, right? And, and Ken, you know, interesting story about Ken. He was back there in the 40s driving these trucks, and like you said, was driving one of the first jig breaks, first reefers. And he sold trucks up till mid, uh, I'm going to say maybe 2008 or 10. And then he actually even worked for a company moving trucks in between dealerships for up to about three or four years ago. So 
he's seen yeah. technology change tremendously in a big way and he's seen a lot of different uh seen it from a lot of different perspectives too you know yeah um shop side uh de- dealers dealer side i'm sure um uh, of course rather and uh and from the driver's seat with pia mm-hmm. you know, we're about everything we hold a lot of a lot of liquor out of uh Seagram's in, in Montreal, and we hauled a lot of soap out of Toronto, a lot of drugs. Most of it was high dollar freight. Right. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't our truck. One one time later on, I bought half interest in two trucks. But uh, at that time, when we first started, it was what we did. And then PIX, they 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 merged with a company called Gill Interstate Lines. Then they called it Gill Picks. Mm-hmm. And I drove for Gil Picks too for a long time, and, and eventually got my own trucks and uh, lived happily ever after. Bought a bought a, bought a new freight line, and the pictures in there, and I hauled a bulk cement into some of these communities, you know, all over British Columbia. Mm-hmm. And I was the first person to pull a load of, of cement from into Bellacoola. That was an Indian reservation. It's about two hundred miles in. It was a dirt road. And it was just like this, you know, going up and down. The road was so narrow that if you met a car, if you're coming out empty and you met a car going up the hill, you just drop over the mountain, just slide down to the bottom of mm. the empty trailer. It took 18 hours to make that round trip. It was so rough and so dirty. Right. And that's what we did. Then I ran up into the North Country, close to the Yukon. Didn't get into the Yukon, but I hauled bulks of men all over it, all over British Columbia. Right. By myself, you know, with that truck. And it, now I, it was a cab over freight liner. What yeah. year was it? Oh gosh, I don't know. It had a, four, had a five and a four, mm-hmm. and it was Cummins engine. It, it, it was so dusty, we had to change the air cleaner every, every trip. It was so dusty. That stint as an owner operator running bulk cement in British Columbia would last Ken Greff a couple of years before he made the decision in part to follow his brother to Nashville. As mentioned briefly earlier, Ken Greff's brother took to music and went on to do big things as a songwriter. Here's Ken talking about the band he was in as a young man, playing the banjo he mentioned early on. Well, it, it wasn't really country. Just old-timey stuff. Right. We, sang, we played the same five songs all the time. It's all we knew. You know? Right. <laughs> so can you still play banjo today? No, I can't. Play my, I've got my banjo in there. They're really the same banjo. Mm-hmm. And it's it's probably worth a lot. I'll show it to you. It's worth a lot of money, but... Because of my arthritis, I can't play it anymore, and my hearing's messed up. So even when I play the piano, it doesn't it doesn't sound right? Right. But it is, it is right. I've got about thirty songs, forty songs on the piano. I played a little while ago. Yeah, waiting on you. Yeah, I'm told my dad's family they played in the opera, not the opera, the opera in Amsterdam, and and that rubbed off on my brother. And on because my brother, you know, he's he wrote over two thousand songs, and he's had right. six hundred recorded. Now your your brother was you said five years younger than you. And, my brother, yeah. Uh-huh, and his name's Ray Graff. Ray, his, his name was spelt different. He was signed. Jim Reeves got him a, a contract with RCA, and RCA changed his name to G R I F F, and and he eventually made that his legal name. So you can pull up his website. He's got all kinds of hit songs over the years. Gotcha. He wrote songs for everybody from. Wayne Newton to Hank Snow, I mean, you name it. The most famous song was Baby. That's the song that brought me down here. It went, it went worldwide. And that's what got him, uh, from, from then on, 
a songwriter in Nashville, if he writes a hit, it's a big hit, the, the entertainers then will come to him for music, mm -hmm. for, for songs, and the producers and stuff. Right. And he, from then on, they, he just, everybody in the world records his songs. And one year, I think I told you this, one year, he was Nashville's number one songwriter many years ago, but he picked up, I've got dozens and dozens of albums in there with, by other artists. That, yeah, it's unbelievable the songs that, that, that pop and country. I was I, I I didn't last long at my brother's company. Well, I was supposed to have been a partner, but uh, that's another story. But I did get into a booking agency later on, part for a while, including uh, Confederate Railroad and some of that. Uh, it helped me get inside get inside to a lot of these. Recording sessions and stuff. When he first moved to Nashville, though, here and uh, my family was still in Vancouver, waiting for me to get settled, and I didn't fit in to my, my brother's music company. There were three of us that owned that company. I was one of the three. The the the, the second person, he bought my brother bought her out for a hundred thousand after one year. Mm -hmm. I didn't get anything, <laughs> so that didn't matter. But anyway, so I had to start all over again. And, my family then, they were sitting there. They had to stay with my mother in Calgary for a while and uh, until I found a place to live in Nashville. And then I started driving for time freight. I'll, and I'll tell you a quick story about that. I'll give Tamesters credit. When I started out with the music business, I applied for a job with Colonial or some, some other truck line. And they said, well, you're a good driver. They tested me in about two blocks. Said so, we're going to we're going to pay so and so and so. It's about half what I deserved, you know. Mm -hmm. I said I, I can't do that. So I called the Teamsters, told them my situation. They called the Teamsters in Vancouver. I went out that night without a driving test for time freight. So. No questions. It was time. Yeah, it was time. And then from went from time to time, DC. Right. They folded up, you know. Okay. And I would just I just run to. We ran to Bristol, we ran Chattanooga, Memphis. Bristol was my favorite one because you could go and spend the night up there. Mm -hmm. Get up there like early in the morning and well, I'd sit around and the two or three other drivers and play the piano and sing for a while and we'd go to bed <laughs> until they called us that night to come back to Nashville. So this was this was mid to late sixties, right? When this is taking yeah, place. Yeah, yeah. When they came out with turbos, I wrote a letter. He didn't know what turbos were, and the drivers were tearing up the engines. And I knew I knew why they were doing it. So I, I wrote an article and put it on the bulletin board how they should drive turbocharged engines. The time offered me a job at the terminal in Texas in the shop. Yeah. I didn't take it. Because to me, we you know we had turbos for years. Yeah. Seems like in talking to you, you ran a lot of trucks with Cummins engines. I guess that yeah. was the. That was the thing. Nothing else would hold up. They, they, they had Hallscott for a while, Butane. They, they tried the jet engines. They, they were, they, they, they got them from Boeing in Seattle, which is just across the, the line. Mm -hmm. But they were too hot. The exhaust was so hot it was burning up the trees. And, the <laughs> and then they got in the, the Buddha engines. Mm -hmm. Burn the Buddhas couldn't couldn't stand the heat. Detroit's they wouldn't last at all. They brought a cracker box or two into Vancouver. Nobody would even drive them because they're, they're too cold for one thing. That little cracker box cab, you know. And uh, 
The Cummins was the main engine at that time. I was driving home, going home from, from work one day. I passed by Kenworth of Tennessee, and I, I stopped by there and asked Lester Turner if they needed anybody to bring trucks in from Seattle. He said, no, we've got people to do that. And just as an afterthought, I said, I bet you I could sell Kenworth because I've owned them and I believe in them. If you don't believe in something, you don't, it'll never work. Right. I, I believe in them and I know I could sell them. And he said, you think you can? I said, yeah. So about a month later, Lester Turner calls me and he said, do you still think you can sell a truck? I said, yeah, I know I can sell Kenworth because I've owned them, driven them. And he said, well, would you move to Knoxville? I said, sure. You want to work on the straight commission? I said, I sure would. So I was the first salesman, Kenworth salesman in Knoxville. And, it, you know, I sleep in my car one night in the cheap motel the next night. And I parked my a truck or two at Kmart parking lot and had a lot of great people in Knoxville that stood up for me. And I can give credit to probably, I've got names of a dozen people that, that coached me over the years. Mm -hmm. And Knoxville treated me royally. I got, they got me into the, Knoxville Motor Truck Association, and, and uh, I got right in with the transportation people, you know. Right. And and I sold quite a few Kenworths around Knoxville. And uh, Kenworth had promised me a, an office, and they didn't wouldn't do it. In the meantime, Paul Cannon, who was the manager of Knoxville Mac, he didn't like any competition. He could run them out or hire them. Mm -hmm. He hired me as a sales manager. I didn't have a clue about Mack trucks because where I come from, they wouldn't use Mack. There's a few B models around, but that was about it. You know, they didn't have a big, a big enough engine in them. So for one thing, and the sleepers were too small. And anyway, a funny story about Kenworth. Nobody in East Tennessee had ever heard of a Kenworth. And there was a company called Burnett Produce up in Morristown. And I had this big shiny Kenworth up there, all Burnett, uh, all their trucks were the chrome package was door handles and headlight rings. Mm -hmm. that's, that's it. And here I am with this really fancy Kenworth. I took it up there to Joe Pat Burnett. And he walked out to the truck and he just walked around it twice and grunted a few times. Then his son, Tubby, he came out and looked at it. And I said, what do you think about a Kenworth? Ah, it ain't no good. You ever drive a Kenworth? Ah, it ain't no good. You know anybody that owns one? Ah, it ain't no good. So I was, I couldn't hardly handle that, you know, I wasn't used to that mm -hmm. resistance. So I followed him back in the office. I'm looking out the window at my only friend, my Kenworth truck, and here the old lady, she was a bookkeeper too, she was out there looking at that truck. She's standing there with her arms folded, and she finally opened the door and peeked inside. She stood there, and she studied that name, you know. She came back in the office, and, she, and I said, what do you think? She said, I'll bet them shares and robot trucks are good. Said I had a Kenmore washer, never did wear it out. <laughs> <laughs> never did sell them to Kenworth, but when I became sales manager in Knoxville, Mac, I did sell them some. We have guys that have uh, uh, stories of being a truck driver for a long time. We've got guys that have owned trucks, have stories, and we got guys that maybe sold trucks. But he's got a perspective of all of them. In some ways, that goes for Mr. Corey Price, too host of the new Trucking Legends podcast. Find a link to where you can hear Price's full talk with Ken Graff in the post that will house this podcast when it goes live at the worldfamousoverdriveonline.com Monday, October 23. Note too that Price is a truck owner himself, the beautiful single drive axle Mac with an interesting story behind it. 
1986 cab over Mac uh, MH613 that I am. Uh, <laughs> I, I got it in 2008. I took it several truck shows, um, but it's not restored or nothing, but enjoy showing it and being around, you know, just driving it and all yeah. that. So I had it non-commercial and was driving it before I got my CDLs. But as soon as I started selling trucks, I got my class A CDLs. So, um, I can, I, I, lots of times I'll jump in a truck, drive it out to a customer, show it to them. And, uh, I used to sell trailers, so I'd hook to a trailer, go show a trailer. So, but it's got a, uh, Mac, uh, E6 300 that's been turned to 350 and a nine mm-hmm. speed transmission double mm-hmm. over top gears in the dash, two tone blue. And, uh, I actually got it when I was chapter president in ATHS, I got, I had, hadn't been married long and uh we just had her son have two children a son and a daughter they're both in high school now but uh and uh we was in the process of wanting to build a house and everybody kept saying when are you gonna get an old truck and i was like i just can't afford it right now guys i'm uh I'm trying to build a house raising a family working you know and uh so in 2008 um a bunch of the guys in the music city chapter went together one of the guys had the truck. It wasn't using it no more. It was just sitting around. They cleaned it up, made sure it was cleaned up and running, put some aluminum wheels on it, and they actually presented it to me, gave it to me at a uh, show over in Knoxville. So that's, that's how I got my Matt Cab over. So. It's Corey Price with the McMahon Truck Center in Nashville, Tennessee, who notes they've got some sleepers on the ground there at the dealer locations for anyone in the market today. It's all types of truck sales folks out there, but if you want to talk old trucks or just pick his brain over what's available, he says give him a call. As for the Trucking Legends podcast, too, he offered this call to Overdrive Radio listeners. I've got several people lined out, but maybe there's somebody out there that knows a trucking legend that would be good for my podcast that I, I don't know about. I'd love to, uh, if, if they could reach out to me and uh, let me know. Find his email contact for that in the show notes wherever you're listening. Overdrive Radio is on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple and Google Podcasts, TuneIn, most any platform. Subscribe so you don't miss an episode, and if you're enjoying these, leave us a rating and review there. Big thanks in advance for that, and here's thanks again to Mr. Corey Price and Ken Greff for their time and their stories. Overdrive Radio is a production of Overdrive, the voice of the American trucker. It's edited and produced by me, Todd Dills, with the acoustic guitar and other support of trucker-songwriter long-haul Paul Marhofer. The theme is Legend of the Snake Man by Marhofer, featuring the guitar work of Travis, the Snake Man himself, Whammock, Terry Two Socks, Richardson on bass, keys by Tishomingo Jim Whitehead, and on drums, Mr. Andrew Marshall. The podcast is backed up further by Overdrive's own news editor, Matt Cole, executive editor, Alex Lockie, and video editors Lawson Rudisil and Andrew Gwynn. See you next time.